This is Sound Education in Law, a podcast where we talk to the experts on the latest law topics you need to know about. I'm your host, Susanna Lopez, and in today's episode, we're going to take a look at derivative actions, the hurdles an applicant must overcome to obtain leave to bring such an action, and the practical questions advisors need to ask when advising a client. Joining me on the line will be corporate and commercial litigator James Dapachi, special counsel at Chamberlain's law firm in Sydney. James, welcome back to Sound Education. Thanks so much for joining us. Many thanks, Susanna. A, a delight to be here as always. Now, first up, James, really, when and how can a, a shareholder or another person bring a derivative action? Yes, um, it's the it's the fiddly question, isn't it? Um, the answer, in short, is when the Corporations Act allows it, and that is uh, the criteria we'll find, and I'm sure discussed at Section 236 and 237, and also when the court grants leave pursuant to its inherent jurisdiction. So if either we comply with the Corporations Act or if we get the courts say so. Well, starting with the corporation law provisions allowing a person to bring a derivative action, Section 236 sets out the general requirements for a person wanting to bring an action. What's the effect of this provision, James? This is the provision that sets out uh, when a an applicant might grant leave. And um, you'll be pleased to hear we won't go through it in chapter and verse, but I thought I might just highlight a couple of important points. Um, When it comes to standing, um, who can make an application? The answer is a member. Um, And it can be a member of the entity itself, which is to say the company that the applicant says has a claim, or it can be a member of a related entity. Um, Another possible uh, person with standing could be an officer or a former officer of the company. Then as we work through Section 236, what we are reminded is that proceedings that are brought pursuant to leave granted in this section must be brought in the name of the company. And then finally, uh, a matter we'll come to is that despite the terms of Section 236, for those of us with the privilege of having a section in front of them, um, the court's inherent jurisdiction to grant leave remains, and this is despite the apparent prima facie bar at Section 236, subsection 3. So... We'll, we'll come to that exception, I'm sure, as we progress this discussion. Section 237 is the provision on which most case law focuses because it sets out the criteria for granting leave to bring a derivative action. Can you just run through those criteria for us, James? Yes. Um, there are five criteria to bear in mind, and uh, I might sound a little bit glib when I say only four of them matter, but we'll, uh, we'll come to that. Um, The first criterion is that an applicant must prove that it's probable the company will not itself bring the proceedings. Next, the applicant is going to have to prove good faith. Then the applicant will have to prove that it is in the best interest of the company that the applicant itself, herself, himself, themselves is granted leave. The fourth criterion is that the applicant is applying for leave to bring proceedings in circumstances where there is actually a serious question to be tried, which is very similar to the test for an interlocutory injunction. And then the fifth, and with with the greatest of respect, least important criterion is that notice must be given for a certain period 
and that requirement can be waived uh, if the court considers it appropriate. The section also includes a rebuttable presumption that granting leave is not in the best interests of the company. When will this presumption arise, James? Yes, uh, it's a good question because uh, the subsection dealing with it is quite fiddly. So let's work through it. Um, The presumption that leave is not in the best interest of the company is going to arise if it can be shown the proceedings are uh, relate to the company and a third party. In short, that's a sub 3A. If the company has decided not to engage in the proceedings or to settle them, and if all of the directors who participated in that decision acted in good faith, didn't have a material interest in it, and informed themselves appropriately about that decision, and they rationally believed that decision, that sort of settlement agreement, was in the best interests of the company. So it's a mechanically complicated test that essentially says it's not in a company's best interest if the company has rationally and reasonably settled a claim. So what are the key features of all these Corporations Act provisions, James, that need to be kept in mind when when advising a client? Yes, um, If we start with the first criterion, um, this is that uh, it's probable the company will not itself bring proceedings. Now, um, I have disagreements about this from time to time, but essentially that's a question of fact, um, and that is a question that will be for the plaintiff to prove. And so often what you'll see is a plaintiff sending a letter to the company saying, uh, dear company, please commence these proceedings. If you don't commence them in 28 days, we're going to presume you're not going to. And so that first criterion will be engaged with in that way. If we move to the second criterion, uh, we think about good faith. Now, interestingly enough, it's going to be relatively easy for a shareholder to prove good faith by saying, hello, I am a shareholder. I want the company to bring this claim because if the company brings the claim and wins, the value of my shares is going to increase. And what's further interesting is that even if a shareholder um, is motivated by personal animus, grumpiness at the potential defendant, which, as you can imagine, can often happen in these sorts of scenarios, it actually doesn't prevent a finding that the application can be brought in good faith. Uh, If we move to the next criterion, when we talk about the best interests of the company, this one's quite fiddly. And it also crosses over with the next criterion, and we'll come to that. But essentially, um, the the court is going to need to consider, through the broad factual matrix of what's going on in the company, whether the claim ought to be brought and whether the claim ought to be brought by the applicant who is seeking to bring it. So is it good for the company? And then a second consideration, is it good for the company that the applicant does it rather than the applicant bringing their own proceedings? And again, uh, interpersonal grumpiness or animus is not really relevant there. The next criterion, serious question to be tried, that's a reasonably low threshold, and it's very similar to the threshold for an interlocutory injunction. And what's interesting um, is the interplay between this section, serious question to be tried, and the previous subsection, best interests, where um, there is some uh, commanding authority that says, it's not in the best interest of a company to bring proceedings where there may be a serious question to be tried, but the 
prospects of success of that serious question are not high. And then the final criterion is a notice provision that um, will either be complied with or not, but in practice doesn't tend to cause great difficulties for any applicant. So, James, if the company is in liquidation, the statutory avenue is not available. This means that an aggrieved shareholder or other party can only resort to the inherent jurisdiction of the court to grant leave to bring a derivative action. So what criteria will a court apply in such a case? The court will apply similar but different criteria. And before I dive into those criteria, I should quickly say If each of the Section 237 criteria are met, the court must grant leave. But then as we move to this discussion about the court's inherent jurisdiction, if each of the inherent jurisdiction criteria that we're just about to discuss are met, the court may grant leave. And so there's a discretion. Now, the three criteria for the companies in liquidation are um, whether the proceedings have a solid foundation And that is a similar but not identical test to the serious question test we mentioned earlier. The second criterion is the attitude of the liquidator about whether proceedings should be pursued. And the third criterion is the quite broadly named practical consideration. And often the practical consideration borne in mind when the court is thinking about exercising its inherent jurisdiction is... um, Are we going to get funding for this claim? Are we likely to recover anything? Does the applicant's indemnity for costs really mean anything? Which is to say, is it worth the paper it's printed on? And uh, as I think we're going to come to soon, sometimes the court will find no is the answer to that question. Well, let's turn to some case law that sheds light on the court's approach to derivative actions, James, and, of course, the application of the relevant criteria. Now, first, a case where the company was in liquidation, Carpenter and Pioneer Park Proprietary Limited. Tell us a bit about the background to this decision, James. Yes, um, we have a member of a company um, who sought leave pursuant to Section 237, the Corporations Act, to bring a derivative action against a lender in the name of the company. And what happened is the court said, yes, you can have leave to go ahead and sue the lender, which the member caused the company to do, and uh, the company lost that litigation. And the next thing the member wanted to do was to appeal. And so the member came before the court and said two things. Firstly, When I was granted leave to bring the first instance proceedings, I was also granted leave to appeal. And the second thing the member said was, if that's wrong, (laughs) please grant me leave to appeal now. So why did the court reject the shareholder's application? It's an interesting question. Um, The first element uh, saw the court work through the first derivative application And um, the court came to a position quite clearly there, which is to say the answer was no. The answer was no, member. The first time you came before the court, you were granted leave to bring the first instance claim, but you were not granted leave to bring the appeal. And the reason for that is that when a court is granting leave to bring a derivative action, the court needs to really understand what the claim the applicant wants to bring is. And so if you're thinking about an appeal, we couldn't have possibly known and you couldn't have possibly known when you were making that first application what the appeal would be all about. 
And so that means that back in the past, when you were first granted leave, you certainly were not granted leave to bring the appeal. The second question, can you have leave to bring the appeal now? Well, the court had to work through, because the company was in liquidation, the inherent jurisdiction questions. Uh, so the court had to consider solid foundation, liquidated attitude, and practical considerations. And on the solid foundation position, the court said, well, you haven't put enough material in front of us to consider this appeal, and so we can't form a view. In relation to the liquidated attitude, the liquidator didn't oppose per se, but was worried about the financial outcome because the member was indebted 62 grand and bankruptcy proceedings against him had been adjourned. So the indemnity that the member offered, offered no real protection. And then in relation to practical considerations, the court traversed the member's difficult financial position again. And what the court eventually did was dismiss the application, finding firstly, that leave had not been granted in the past, and secondly, leave would not be granted now. Mm -hmm. Well, in the next case, in the matter of Sundara Proprietary Limited, uh, it involved a shareholder's director's applications for leave to bring derivative actions on behalf of four companies, three of which were in liquidation. Now, what were the shareholder's grievances in this case, James? The shareholder took the view that, in short, the lender had jumped the gun. The shareholder said that, look, each of these four entities is a farmer and each of the debts owed is a farm debt. And pursuant to the Farm Debt Mediation Act, you haven't engaged in the statutory process you need to. And so that means your enforcement actions are void. And the hot uh, button of this dispute is the member bringing the application against the receivers, but the property has also been sold and the member is also actively engaging with purchases. So what the applicant needs to do in respect of three of the companies in liquidation is deal with the liquidation criteria and in respect of one of the companies that's in receivership deal with a separate question. So the court refused leave in relation to the three companies that were in liquidation. Why was that, James? They worked through the criteria that we've just learned about in relation to the inherent jurisdiction. So as we remember, the first step, if you're thinking about a derivative action for a company in liquidation, is solid foundation. And what the court found was that in relation to one of the entities, there was a solid foundation for proceeding. Uh, and in relation to some of the other entities, there was not. And we've got evidence that some of these entities are growing olives and some of them are licensing uh, logos for use in distributing uh, farmed goods. And there's a bit of a blurry distinction between some of them. But certainly some are farmers, which is to say some of the debts they incurred would be farm debts, and some are not. But... We then move on to the practical considerations point, and here the member faces real serious problems because he has assets of 6,000, credit card debts of 250,000, personal guarantees to banks in excess of 45 million, a judgment against him for 11 million, and a further debt to the relevant lender in these proceedings of 23 million. And so it was not a huge jump for the court to find 
that the indemnity this heavily indebted member offered was of no real practical assistance to the liquidator and of no real assistance to the applicant in seeking to bring a derivative action. And so the court did not grant leave in relation to the three companies in liquidation. And the court also refused leave in relation to the other company that had had a receiver appointed but was not in liquidation. Why was that? This is an interesting one. Um, The court assumed without deciding that Section 237 would apply to a company in receivership and not the court's inherent jurisdiction. And so the court then turned to the Section 237 criteria that we now know so well. Uh, The court assumed the company wouldn't bring the proceedings. And the court found that the applicant was acting in good faith because the applicant's looking to get some money out of these arrangements. However, the lack of any value to the applicant's indemnity meant that it was not in the best interest of the company for leave to be granted for the applicant to go ahead. And what that meant was that the application failed in relation to all four companies and, as often happens, costs followed the event. Right. Good try, but no cigar. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a funny thing. I was going to say close, but no cigar. With the greatest of respect, perhaps close is putting too fine a point on it. Now, in the matter of Global Advanced Metals Proprietary Limited, and this was a case where a shareholder claimed that the company's assets were sold at an undervalued price, um, what was the background to this application, James? This is a really interesting one on paper. Um, We have a shareholder in this company that produces and supplies this chemical tantalum, which I know nothing about and probably should have uh, checked in on Wikipedia ahead of our chat this morning, Susanna. But if we leave that aside, the value of these assets is quite volatile. And the shareholder is concerned that in 2016, the directors of the company caused it to sell for $60 million some assets. Now, the shareholder says that sale was at a massive undervalue because the assets were worth somewhere between $245 million and $900 million. And essentially, the directors breached their duties by not getting proper value for these assets. The shareholder goes ahead and says, well, obviously, your 2016 $60 million sale was at an undervalue because in 2018, some of those assets were sold for $1.15 billion. And so uh, there must be some problem there. Now, the court considered this and found this to be afflicted by what we might call a hindsight problem. As the court, reading between the lines, asked itself rhetorically, why should a 2016 valuation rely on a big number in 2018 or indeed a small number in 2019? And this set the scene for the court's findings. So what conclusions did the court reach in considering the criteria for granting leave, James? Remembering this is a company not in liquidation, so we're working through the Corporations Act criteria. Um, The court found it was fairly uncontroversial. The company was not itself going to bring the claim, so that was fine. Um, Good faith was found to be reasonably straightforward to prove because the shareholder would benefit if the company sued its directors and won. The real Um, challenge um, arose in relation to best interests, because even though the company found there was a reasonably arguable claim against directors, and again, notice we 
with the greatest of respect, don't need to spend too much time on, <laughs> um, was going to be fine. What the court does is work closely through the best interests point, and it finds that if the applicant were granted leave, there'd be significant disruption and distraction in the company because some of the defendants were current directors and one of them is the CEO. There'd be a real challenge to insurance premiums for the company. Potential lenders might be scared off. And the undertaking to indemnify the company might cover legal costs, but not all the potential costs the company might face. And so, curiously enough, we have this shareholder showing there's this serious claim and bringing it in good faith, but the court rejecting the application on the basis that it would cause such violence to the management of the corporation that it was not in the best interest of the company for the claim to be brought. And that was why the court rejected the application? Precisely so. The court did not grant leave there for the applicant to go ahead. I'm feeling very pessimistic about these cases and whether anyone's ever granted leave. Um, <laughs> now, now, derivative action applications can often arise in family disputes, probably, probably the ugliest of them all. <laughs> in the matter of VCAD Proprietary Limited, which concerned a, a farming family dispute, is it, and then it's an example of where leave to bring the derivative action was granted by the court. Hallelujah. Why did the court grant leave in this case, James? Well, we may say hallelujah if we empathise with our shareholder. Um, essentially, we have um, one theatre of war in a big, complex, deceased estate dispute. So the company is this farming and grazing company, and two of our sons of our deceased are there are occupying the property without paying rent, and the unpaid rent might be in some hundreds of thousands of dollars. And our disgruntled shareholder says, right, um, directors causing themselves to uh, occupy company property without paying rent is a breach of their duties. And the court had not massive difficulty with the greatest of respect granting leave to the applicant. Uh, the court found it was unlikely the directors were going to cause the company to sue themselves. Interestingly, there was a significant amount of interpersonal malice, as you can imagine, between siblings in a deceased estate. But the court found that despite this animus, despite this anger, despite these hot feelings, the application still was brought in good faith because uh, the applicant was a shareholder and the value of their shares would increase if the application was successful. Now, uh, the applicant granted an indemnity to the company in respect of any costs, and so the claim was found to be in the best interest of the company. And the low threshold... Uh, for a serious question to be tried, uh, was met. What that meant was that uh, the court granted leave and to return to one of our themes, indeed the applicant did also provide notice. So ticked every box and the court found that with each box being ticked, it was free to go ahead and grant leave and that that was the appropriate outcome. Well, a very recent case where the application for leave was refused in a family dispute was Mount Gilead Proprietary Limited and Hobhouse. And it's a case in which I understand, James, you actually represented one of the defendants, so you have an inside view. The case was complicated by a claim that leave should be refused because the applicant former director of the company was a party to a settlement of various issues in a wider family dispute. So, as far as you're able, uh, tell us what the story was. 
Yes, I wish you'd asked me yesterday, Susanna, because since uh, you and I last dealt with each other by email in preparing for this chat, I've received a notice of intention to appeal. And so what I might do is keep my comments as broad as I possibly can. Um, what we have here is a dispute regarding uh, reasonably valuable real estate, reasonably valuable land um, that was sold a number of years ago. Uh, what the applicant said was this sale, similar to the scenario in Global Advanced Metals that we discussed a moment ago, what the applicant said was this sale was at an undervalue. And so the applicant applied to the court for leave to sue the director of the company, which was uh, her brother, and leave to sue various parties related to the transaction, alleging that they had failed in their duties to properly advise the company to get essentially a better sale price for the sale of land. And I acted for one of those uh, alleged advisors in relation to the transaction. So why did the court first agree that the application for leave fell within and was barred by the settlement deed? The answer to that is a highly technical one, but the very short point is because of the definitions found within the deed. Now, I didn't act for any parties in that deed, so I will do my best to be as neutral as I can. But in short, um, the deed related to possible claims that might be brought, uh, and there was some complexity here because the events took place over a number of years and included um, a document that was referred to in the deed but didn't technically form part of the main body of the deed. And so what the court found uh, following a close technical analysis and construction of the deed was that the release that the applicant had given served to bar um, her right to bring this application. The court nevertheless went on to consider the Corporations Act criteria for granting leave. Now, the court concluded that leave would not have been granted to bring the action, even in the absence of the provisions of the settlement deed. Why was that? The short answer, uh, which is the only length I'm really prepared to give, Susanna, if that's all right, with, uh, with the Court of Appeal potentially looming in the background, um, is that criteria B, C and D, which is to say uh, good faith, uh, best interest and serious question were relevant to the court in considering whether leave would have been granted in the absence of the settlement deed. So bringing it back to generalities, James, looking at the practical implications of these various decisions for advising clients about derivative actions and, and a possible checklist of questions to be answered... Mm. What do you say are the pre-action questions that need to be considered? I think the most fundamental one is the first one, um, which is one that all commercial litigators will raise, and that is, have all reasonable avenues for negotiation been exhausted? Applications like this are expensive and complex, and they are also a mere gateway. They're just the first step before the big substantive claim. And so if you are a client acting for a potential applicant, you must satisfy yourself, I say, with respect, that this really is the option your client ought to be taking and that there's no other opportunity for you and your client to chart a path out of this. The second question you might ask, uh, if you've satisfied yourself on the first, is whether there's some alternative claim your client might be able to bring in its own capacity because if you are bringing a derivative action and it is resisted, 
um, you might find that that is in itself a complex, time-consuming and expensive piece of litigation. Following that, there are some more uh, technical suggestions that I'd invite you to make. Well, what are the questions that need to be considered when you're actually preparing an application? Um, Standing is an interesting one, and um, proof of whether or not your client is a member or shareholder of a company can actually sometimes become a contested point, um, particularly if the company has not been very good at maintaining its own uh, register. Um, You're going to want to think about, I say, draft pleadings if you're acting for an applicant. You really want to say to the court, this is precisely the claim that we want to bring. This is precisely the claim that we say is in the best interest of the company. And this is precisely the serious issue to be tried that we want the court to consider. And if you don't set that out, you run the risk of the court saying, well, we don't really know what it is you want to do. And so we're not going to give you permission to go off on some vague fishing trip. We're only prepared to give you permission to do specific things. And if you don't have that degree of specificity, I say you're increasing the risk for your clients. And then generally, um, the final suggestion is to bear in mind the distinction between the Corporations Act criteria and the inherent jurisdiction criteria when you're dealing with uh, solvent companies versus companies in liquidation. And you might also want to sink an hour or two into legal research if the company is in receivership. Because to the best of my knowledge, the question of whether the Corporations Act or the inherent jurisdiction applies remains an open one, uh, as was left open in the decision of Carpenter that we discussed earlier. Well, James, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. And I do hope that uh, having spoken about this case that you may be involved in at appeal level um, is not going to in any way prejudice you or your client. I certainly hope so too, Susanna, and I'm certain it won't. (laughs) And you've been listening to Sound Education in Law. You can check out our website, www.tved.net.au, for more content on legal developments. I'm your host, Susanna Lobez. I look forward to speaking with you next time.